Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com. And enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle with my co-host, Drew Youngdike. Today, we're very lucky to have Two fellas I know from a couple or two or three years now, we met up because this issue is so important to us. Uh, We have Leland Brown and Chris Parrish here today. They're from the North American Non-Lead Partnership. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Glad to be here. And so we'll tell you a little bit about these gentlemen first, and then we'll dive in on these issues. Uh, Leland Brown has directed this program since about 2015. Uh, via the Oregon Zoo. Uh, you know, he, he's an avid hunter, conservationist. He's been pushing this for a while. Uh, you know, he's been a, a, a wildlife biologist, you know, working a lot on invasive species management across California. Other, other states, Leland, I can't recall. I was in Hawaii for a while shooting things out there, which was cool fun. Good. Yeah, dealing with a lot of invasive species. Uh, and then we have Chris Parrish here, too. And Chris works for the Peregrine Fund as well on his his side job. And Chris has, is from California originally, and he's a, also a biologist or has a bachelor's of biology, if he would like to say exactly what that means for, for our audience, um, an emphasis on fish and wildlife management. He came to uh, the Arizona Fish and Game Department doing that work. He's been a condor uh, specialist. Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that condor part of it, condor program director? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll give everybody all the, all the reasons to, uh, put me in a category. I'm from California, but I like to (laughs) say the disclaimer, I'm from Bakersfield and, and, uh, Bakersfield is a little different than the rest of California, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a, uh, 
a biologist, uh, mostly raptor work. I worked for Arizona Game and Fish Department for a while. Um, did all kinds of different things there, basically whatever they would pay me to do, from sampling for canine distemper and coyotes, working with black-footed ferrets, working with California condors. And I've spent the majority of my career working with the California condor for the Peregrine Fund, being the uh, first the program manager um, for the Condor Project. And so, yeah, 24 years now of uh, working with condors and more recently branching out to becoming the conservation director for the Peregrine Fund. Uh, and my primary responsibilities are Golden Eagles, Alphamato Falcons, California Condors, and this new partnership that Leland and I co-founded with a couple of other folks um, with the North American Non-Lead Partnership. And I guess I'll, I'll just start with um, the the reason the reason that's so important to me as an individual is I'm a hunter first. I'm, I'm a hunter. I am a biologist, conservation biologist, but um, the future of hunting is, is paramount to us and maintaining our heritage. And so how that connects to the science that we are involved in, in this, in my case with condors, but um, evolving beyond that, I think the North American Non-Lead Partnership is the, the culmination of, of all of my personal life, my hunting, my angling, and, and the science together. Awesome. Thanks, guys. And I, that's a good reminder that I should probably just let uh, the folks who are, are on uh, tell us themselves who they are instead of having me, you know, work through their bios nice and clunky like. Uh, well, let's just dive right in. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing outside lately. That's our little tradition here. First, we just kind of talk. We've been doing outside. Well, I'll go first because my story is not as interesting. Uh, we've been dealing with a lot of wildfire up here in Oregon, so been a little bit cooped up for the last couple of weeks, but things finally cleared out about a week ago and got some rain. So I've been doing some training for upcoming hunts this October, so I leave on Sunday for a big trip, and I've got some deer hunts later in the month. And it's all just, you know, making sure I'm healthy and make sure I'm shooting straight. So that when I get out there, I can see what I need to do. Nice. And Chris, you told us a little bit, but why don't you just give us whatever short version you're willing to share here? I'm glad you qualified it with a short version. Anybody that knows me knows that I like to talk and, and uh, I like to share share what we've been up to. And the, the main thing for me was taking full advantage um, of the uh, COVID and our lack of travel. You know, Leland and I, we covered 26 states and three Canadian provinces last year in outreach and education for the partnership. And I had fully intended to take at least 14 days off for an elk hunt in Arizona, a highly coveted tag that I'd finally drawn for bull elk and um, had the time to actually hunt and scout. So uh, it was my first archery kill and hunted 14 days and scouted a few before that. And in really hot temperatures, um, finally found some bulls that were willing to engage and harvested a nice, a nice elk. And uh, it's been hanging for the last five days while I was out doing other things and for work. And now I'm ready to process this elk before I leave the house again for another, another survey. Nice. Well, that might be the understatement of the year because of what you told us before. It was a hell of a hunt, but since you're not getting into it, we won't. <laughs> you said keep it short <laughs> drew what about you tell tell us what you're up to lately 
Well, I know out west you've been bow hunting for a while now, but here here in Michigan, we don't start our archery deer season until October 1st. So I'm kind of getting my last minute, uh, that, you know, getting dialed in with my recurve, uh, keeping it short. Might be a few more weeks before I actually get a chance to get up to the Pigeon River country where I like to hunt, big patch of public land, and uh, do, do a backpack hunt over the weekend. So right now it's kind of like Leland. I'm just preparing for the hunting opportunity that I may get a, a few weeks from now. It's a beautiful time of the year. I'm I'm in between hunts too. My my 15 year old son's been hunting big game for two years now. Took his first big game animal last year, pronghorn, and then this year he's he's trying for elk. And we had a muzzleloader tag, got in him a bunch, but didn't didn't get one. But he has four other short rifle seasons he's eligible for this year. So been working with him, and I've got one coming up. But in between, I've been getting in some fishing. The weather here in Colorado has been just the stuff of dreams, you know, 72 degrees for a high, 38 degrees for a low at night, just beautiful crisp fall days. So I've been getting out whenever I can fishing, got out a couple of days last week and just enjoying the fall weather and hoping the smoke doesn't move in from, from my friends up there in Oregon and in California, Leland. Uh, well, let's dive in. Um, you know, you all know, because we've worked together a few times, uh, we're all pretty passionate about, you know, trying to get the lead out of hunting and fishing. We believe in it personally and professionally. And I couldn't think of, of two better people for us to talk to, to help convey why this is important, what the message is, why people should care. So let's just start with the, with the big, broad overview. If we were talking to somebody who's never heard about this issue, and I know you guys have done this a lot. Uh, just dive in for us with, you know, what what the heck is the issue here, and you know why should we care? Yeah, I mean for sure, and I think all of us are in the same boat. Right? We all started in that same spot where we didn't know about this, and we learned about it, and then worked through the process. And all that's happening with us is that we worked through the process earlier than everybody else. Um, you know, Chris has been using non-lead probably what, close to twenty years now, and I'm. A little closer to 10. Um, but the reality is, as hunters, we take care of the landscape. We make sure that the impacts we have are managed. We work hard to make sure that when we say one shot, one kill, we mean it. And unfortunately, the new research that's come out in the last 20 years has been showing that um, the remains of our bullets are having impacts we don't want. Uh, you know, when we've got that animal, leave that remains in the field. Um, it's carrying all that weight loss off those bullets. And that's a great food source for lots of species, in particular raptor species, um, who come in and scavenge on that. So, you know, your eagles and, and hawks and things like that. And, you know, when they're picking up that great meal, they're, they're using that lead bullet that's leaving that weight behind. They're also picking up that lead. And so we've got, you know, really good, strong evidence that we're seeing uh, mortality and levels of exposure that indicate changing behavior and all sorts of different impacts on wildlife species that we would never take a shot at. Uh, and by choosing a different tool, we're able to both be successful, provide those resources, take care of those resources, and make sure we're not doing anything we didn't intend to do. And there's a lot of science that's behind that conversation that we can get way down into the weeds on but that's the basics of it is we do what we mean to do 
can we avoid doing anything on accident? On lead bullets, let us do that. Yeah, I, th I think the, um, you know, the, the starting off with some of the, the foundational science for, for my experience and, and what led to some of the programs we have down here in Arizona and Utah, it's, we asked ourselves a simple question. We're seeing some of these bird species that are highly monitored, like the condor. We're seeing them come into a, a hell of a lot of lead in the environment, and there seemed to be a correlation to the hunting season. So trying to re retain being a true, taking a scientific perspective um, in asking questions, the first question we asked ourselves in the early 2000s were, where in the world is the lead coming from? And so we've looked into things like, is it coming from the water within the region? Is it coming from the fish within a region? Um, and of course, you know, is it coming from the remains of animals that we leave in the field? So a simple question like, how much does a bullet fragment? Because we, we always look at how much weight a bullet retains, and that's kind of the common jargon, or that's what's commonly thought of about bullet performance. Does a bullet retain all of its mass? And we know it does not. So what we wanted to find out is where does it go? And we asked that question and said, well, in a standard deer hunting situation where you're using a centerfire rifle from, say, 243 on up to some of the magnum rounds, how much does a bullet fragment? And we went up to Wyoming and we shot um, 34 deer, I think, is what we had as a sample size for the first study. And we actually counted, quantified the number of fragments resulting from a single shot under normal hunting circumstances. And that was the eye-opener for, for, for myself and for the folks here in Arizona. And then we started sharing those results um, with, with our, our fellow hunters. And we developed voluntary lead reduction programs on the heels of that. And so that's kind of the foundational science for, for where, where we came from. And then of course, that has been corroborated by other studies that have been done in the ensuing years. And we find that, yeah, if a bullet retains 75, 80% of its mass, it yields quite a high number of fragments that can be left in the remains of carcasses left in the field, whether that be big game, small game, and now there's even research on, on rimfire ammunition and how much fragmentation occurs there. And that kind of sets the stage for how come we haven't seen this before? Well, maybe because we weren't looking, but more importantly, because we didn't have as fine of understanding of it. And, and so our little program here in Arizona led to a program in Utah whereby hunters are encouraged to use non-lead ammunition with all different kinds of incentives, whether it's purchasing ammunition for them and then you know, that was in the in the early years when the non-lead center fire rifle ammunition wasn't as good as it is today. And now we come fast track 20 years later. And uh, man, it, this is on the map. People are talking about it. So that's kind of that's kind of the, the perspective from from here and how that relates to the North American non-lead partnership was that that we as hunters and as scientists thought, Man, the people people are gonna our fellow hunters are gonna want to know about this all across the the nation and and the world for that matter because um, it's pretty simple science and so sharing that and having a platform to do so is what caused you know Leland and I and, and a couple of others to say we, we've got to get this out there and we have to separate ourselves from the rest of the politics and that's really hard to do because all the while. There were, you know, petitions and threats to ban lead and finally a lead ban in California. So um, that was an awful big leap there. So I'll, I'll back up and let you guys direct uh, which direction we go. But uh, yeah.
Well, let's let's just jump into that part of it right now as as long as we're here because you mentioned earlier that you were helping to develop voluntary non-lead adoption practices. Um, can you talk about that aspect of your work and maybe some of the misconception when you're promoting non-lead at NWF, we promote voluntary adoption of non-lead. And actually our Michigan affiliate, the biggest uh, conservation organization in Michigan just adopted a policy to encourage voluntary use of non-lead. Could you talk about that aspect of your work and why that part of it is important? Yeah. And again, I'm going to keep it as to the stuff I'm closest to, which is before the partnership. And, and that was our partners at Arizona Game and Fish Department. When we shared our preliminary data from the scavenger study and from our, our collected data on the, the Condor program here, um, it was in an effort to find a solution. And, and we weren't, we, we didn't pr propose the solution. The solution was how do we deal with what we have learned as to Here's the availability of lead. Here's where we're seeing it. What do we do about it? So our partners at Arizona Game and Fish were really um, on the cutting edge back in the early 2000s. And they queried the hunters and ranching community and said, here's what we're finding. And we would like to engage you all with, with this information and find some, some possible solutions. And they helped shape that. And so that's really the difference is it wasn't it wasn't a conservation organization coming and saying, Here are, here's our science and here's the solution and here's what you need to do. That's not what we did. And, and part of the reason we didn't do that is because I, I want to think that I'm, I'm a, a reasonable, I'm less of a scientist than maybe my title says I am. Um, I'm a hunter and I know my hunting brethren and I know that there's new stuff on the docket every year um, that, you know, this is bad for you. That's bad for you. This is bad for the environment. That's bad. And after a while, you just become inundated with all the bad things. And it's like, no, how do we find a, a viable solution? And our approach to that solution was to engage the hunting community, ask them for their help, share our, the newest data with them, and then seek a solution. And so really, it, it, it was born of that. And then the, the big leap was then how do we expand that on a landscape scale? Um, and, and that's where the partnership came in. So it was by engaging with our, our hunters and engaging with our partners. Maybe before we, before we dive in a little bit of exactly how the organization was formed, you talked a little bit about the science. Um, but, you know, one of, the, one of the things we hear is that the verdict is not decided yet, that the science is still out. And there's, and there's still a lot yet to be proven and or that, you know, we're not seeing population level impacts, for instance. So, so what should we be thinking about that? So, you know, just, just touch on a little bit of how full we think the science is and, you know, maybe addressing some of those, those folks who, who say what I just said. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think there's some, some pieces to that that we have to consider. One is, okay, at, at what point, um, is the research enough to consider hunters doing something about a problem? Um, there's a question of, okay, are we actually seeing declining populations? Um, that's very challenging to, to tease out the exact reason for various, um, source, you know, reasons for a declining population. What we do have extremely strong evidence of is that there is a man-made source of exposure um, that 
hunters have almost exclusive responsibility for that is completely preventative. And that's a very different conversation. And the science about rates of exposure and sources of exposure is extremely strong. Um, and it goes through a couple of different things. There's the initial research that Chris was talking about looking at fragmentation rates. Then there's the research looking at exposure rates around different times of year and linking that into hunting seasons and feeding behavior of these scavenging species. Then beyond that, there's the isotope studies that actually look at the type of lead that's um, the exposure is happening. And that on its own doesn't tell you the full story, but combined with the rest of it tells you a little. Um, and then finally, there's the different levels of exposure and impact and potential health impacts that come along with that. And only recently, in the last couple of years, has there been the technology and research put into sublethal impacts, which we all know with lead is a, is a huge concern. Mortality is kind of the end of it. But with, with lead exposure, there's a lot of sublethal impacts on changes in behavior, um, changes in physiology and morphology stuff that, that we really have to be considering um, from good stewardship and, and good conservation. And so where we're looking at right now is from hunting ammunition, we know that there is serious exposure, preventable exposure issues in a lot of these populations. And we have tools available that work extremely well, um, non-lead bullets and non-lead shot that can allow us as hunters to continue to be successful, but also ensure that we're addressing these preventable exposures and all the co-occurring um, kind of ethics and socio issues that come with that around hunting. That gets back to you know what Chris was saying earlier. We see this as a really strong way to protect and sustain the future of hunting. It's because hunters are under a microscope a lot of the time. And I won't say that we're always under attack because the general public pretty much supports hunting. Um, you know, we're like 80% support, but we're definitely watched. And if we're seeing an issue that we can address and we can make sure is not occurring and prevent um, this exposure source that is completely kind of unnecessary now with the technological innovation of bullets and shot, um, then it's a win-win for hunting as a whole and for wildlife conservation at the same time. I love it. And I, and I, you know, you know, I'm with you and I really appreciate the way you talked about it in the beginning with, you know, it's not our intention to do this. And really that that's the crux of it to me. When you're, when you're a hunter, it's your obligation to ensure that your shot is true. You know, that you're not shooting on a ridge line, that there's not other animals behind the animal you're shooting, all these other things. This is just one of those factors I think that comes in, right? It's just your job to ensure no other harm. That's that's your ethical responsibility as a hunter. So, really appreciate that, and I and I like what you said too about about the science. Um, you know, I'm with you. I've read a lot of the different science, the peer reviewed stuff. There's more coming out all the time. I think that the information is starting to become pretty obvious and overwhelming that there is certainly an effect. 
and certainly something that we can do about it. And those two things to me are enough to, to really promote this work and to, you know, try to talk to other hunters and, and get them thinking about this issue. Because I think most hunters tend to have the, the want to do the right thing. And it's been amazing. You know, we, sorry, Leland, I can tell you, you're going to, you're going to tell me something, but I'll just say one thing as a promotion for, for you all, we did a demonstration together in Montana. And I remember there was maybe 20 some people there. And I think five, six, seven, eight people that day walked away saying, okay, I got it. We're, I'm switching. I'm, I'm not ever shooting lead again from those demonstrations. That's how powerful they are. So thank you for that. And, and dive in with, with whatever I was, is not letting you say there. Yeah. I, so there's a, there's a couple of pieces in there that you hit on. And I think one is to remember for, you know, for most of us, it's been a while, but if you went through Hunter Ed, thinking about that conversation about choosing your shots, um, and there's a lot, big piece of that is that that's one of the gun rule, you know, gun safety rules, know your shot and what is beyond. And that's just a direct gun safety, you know, what your bullet's going to hit. But for me, it also applies to time. So if I know what my bullet's doing, and then I know that there's something that can happen after the fact, um, I maintain ownership of all of those pieces, all of those impacts. Um, and that's, I think, something that we really have to consider is, I'm a biologist, I spend a fair amount of time reading peer-reviewed papers, interpreting peer-reviewed papers, but I don't expect the general hunting public to sit down and read a bunch of those papers. They're getting information from people that they trust to be telling them what's going on. And that's all we're trying to do is say, look, here's what the papers are, are telling us. And here's what some of the options available to you are. And there's, it's not just a one size fits all. For some people, there just really isn't a non-lead option available. There are other ways to address it. So you can pack out the entire animal. And Chris can get into this a lot. My response to that is always, I'm lazy as anybody. I don't carry stuff. I don't have to. You know, if, if I don't have to carry the internal organs that I'm not going to eat, I won't do it. And the performance of a non-lead bullet is everything I'm looking for in hunting range. Um, the expansion, the weight retention, the penetration, accuracy, all of those equate to the best possible ammunition and the best possible impact on the resources. And then the other piece is, you know, a lot of people will talk about this and say, oh, well, it's going to make shooting too expensive, right? Like, uh, and when I, you know, I shoot a lot of ammo all year, and this is just going to price people out. We're talking about shooting an animal. We're talking about the use of bullets to shoot an animal. If you need to go to the range and practice with other ammunition, with lead ammunition, um, ranges have resources available to address those localized um, impacts of having a bunch of lead embedded in those burns and all that. So that's a big thing for us is that we're not talking about all shooting. We're talking about shooting of animals that become food sources on the landscape. And I know Chris has been just waiting to add some more into that. So I'm sure. Get him, Chris. But, 
look look how patient uh, I've I've learned to become Leland. Yeah, you know it's tough for Leland and I um, because we always do this alone, and we we found that it's far better when we're both together and learning to feed off of one another. And and um, but it's that's why it's so tough because we've been doing this as lone lone rangers for so long that now we get to do it together and, and it's a better product. But um, jumping back to the very first thing you said, Aaron, is that. How what you have to define what portion of this issue you're talking about, and we like to take it, and I like to take it even more simple. Leland's more of a scientist than I am. Um, I take it down to the most simple form of knowing what you know. If I'm talking to a fellow hunter or angler, knowing what you know about lead, would you knowingly put it into the food chain? And the answer is usually no. Now I'm. I'm um, I'm oversimplifying it because really I think that's where you need to start when you're talking to one another. Now, if we're talking to an agency, now we're talking about how do you navigate this big nasty issue that in some places has become litigious or or um, you know there's legislation proposed. Well, that's a whole different can of worms to to talk about. So really, I think the best way you can do it is to narrow it down to the individual first. And really, as hunters and for hunters, we want to see ourselves represented to the masses of non-hunters and especially the anti-hunters. Because of my profession and what I do with condors, I'm asked more frequently to talk about condors than I am to talk about non-lead. And I use that opportunity to talk to largely a non-hunting community to represent to them, hey, what we are doing as hunters, if we are engaged properly, it can be the, the results can be phenomenal. And but you can't go after hunters and say and wagging your finger and saying, you have to fix this. Well, hell, maybe they don't even know there's a problem. And so when you explain it from our perspective, as we have come to learn it, then the the response is just like you saw at that shoot, Aaron, where in the beginning, and I don't care whether it's a, a group of hunter education instructors or a group of, uh, of uh, attendees at a local sportsman's and women's group. Um, it doesn't matter. We're always going to have a certain percentage of them with their arms crossed saying, I'm not so sure. You know why they're not so sure is because what they've been fed through the media is the whole issue, not one piece of it. And when you break it down piece by piece, I think it's easier to navigate. So that's how we do it. As a hunter, we have responsibilities. We have a conservation ethic that is demonstrated by so many great things um, that we that we hearken back to. In, in You see it every day. You know, look at what Leopold has done. Look at what Roosevelt did. Look at what Pauswitz has done. This is the same opportunity, except what's different. Every individual hunter has an opportunity to make a contribution to conservation, and it's as simple as the bullet they choose to use. And that's a great place to start. Now, that doesn't address how does an agency um, embark on engaging with their constituents. That's an entirely different thing. Or how does a nation uh, respond to it? So I think it's important to really narrow down the question first. What are we talking about? Um, the whole issue, we're talking about population limiting effects. Now we're talking about the responsibilities of agencies. That's what they do. They manage wildlife and hunting. Well, we're not going to go tell them what they need to do, but we can give them a lot of information that will help influence and make a good decision at the end. And that's our primary goal allow hunters and anglers to have the information they need to make a well-informed decision. And what we have found when that happens is they make a great decision for wildlife. 
And we've seen that on the local level. Now we just need to do it on a landscape scale. That's a great segue to just kind of talking about how you guys got together. You know, what, what made you decide to, to, to do the North American Non-Lead Partnership? You know, what spurred that? Just tell us a little bit about the origin of that, that organization. Well, I think, I mean, we kind of have to go back a little bit on this because we talked a little bit about legislation and litigation. And you know, every time someone thinks about this issue now, the first thing that probably pops in their head these days is California. Um, yeah. And I, I worked in California around that. I was working for a, a nonprofit that did a lot of uh, invasive species removal. And they asked me to work a project up in central California at Pinnacles National Monument, National Park now, to do some feral pig removal work. And they said, okay, well, you come here. First of all, you have to use non-lead ammunition. And I said, what's that? And then second of all, you have to talk to people about your experiences and help them learn how to use it because just a couple of years before when Chris and all that work they had done looking at fragmentation had first come out, some groups had gone straight to legislature and used the California condor endangered species status to push legislation through banning the use of lead ammunition in the portion of the state. And so now all the hunters in that section of California were required to use non-lead ammunition and most of them had the same response I did, which was, what the hell is that? And I don't know anything about it. And how does it work? And why would I do this anyway? Um, so I was able to spend a lot of time using ammunition and telling people about my experience, how to make it work, and then um, going back and testing it again um, on animals. And I uh, I dealt with a lot of, issues around that because as soon as you require the use for people that don't know anything about it, it's very contentious. Um, and so I left for a while and went to Hawaii where all I had to do was the removal work, which you know was very interesting, but this position in, in Oregon came, came back up. And we had tried while well, I was in California, that's where I met Chris and several of these other folks, we had tried to start to pull together a more cohesive group because we were doing all of this separate outreach in different places and keeping it all pretty local. Um, but we were talking to each other. We were just trying to figure out how to coordinate better. And it never quite came together. And when I started this position in Oregon, you know, everyone was still talking to each other, but we still hadn't figured out how to coordinate and create a more organized effort. And that's where I think we really started to say, okay, this is this is getting bigger. You know, now there's this program in Oregon. I know I'm up here. So we're continuing to go in Arizona and Utah. That's been going for a long time. Uh, there's a couple of folks still stuck in in California dealing with all the legislation, but still trying to work to help the hunting community address you know, best practices, how to actually make the animal work for them and be successful as hunters. And that's really where the impetus for the partnership itself came together. So in 2018, well, 2017, we started really pulling up together ideas and launched the partnership at the end of June of 2018, I think it was. And I feel like I glossed over a bunch of that, Chris, that 
maybe you can fill in there. Um, I think the biggest piece for me is that coming out of California and seeing all the responses that came with that approach with those groups who are not associated with hunting, um, who are really pushing this onto the hunting community, really made me come to the decision that the best way to do this was in partnership with our fellow hunters and not in opposition to them. And I think Chris had that same experience. Oh yeah, when we when we published our findings of that fragmentation study, I thought I was so excited, and I'm still kind of naive. I'm slow to pick up on things uh, uh, with a lot of clever people around. And we published that paper, and it was one of the first products that I was really proud of in my professional career. And uh, I thought, great, this is what we need to get out there. This is simple science. We need to share it with our fellow hunters, and the solutions will be obvious. And then we'll we'll embark on solving that problem. Much to my dismay and others, that like Leland said, there were groups that um, took the results of our science and began beating people over the head with it and telling them what they needed to do. And all the while, I'm sitting back in the background going, no, no, wait, wait, this is, no, that's not what this is for. This was, this was an honest question. And, and, and we have some simple answers and, and now we can move forward, but that doesn't mean we need to jump, you know, into telling agencies how to manage uh, that's that's their job. This is a piece that they will use to inform how they make policy. <clears throat> so I find my I found myself in the middle, um, quite quite frankly, and I found myself having to go to commission meetings in California to make sure that the intent of our studies was understood, that it wasn't to guide uh, um, you know uh, a, a certain rule like a ban. It was to get the information out there so people could begin using it. Um, so. Luckily, with our close relationship we had with Arizona Game and Fish, um, it resulted in a voluntary outreach and education and incentivization program to begin using non-lead. And so that model um, led to all of our collective thinking that, hey, there's a there's a better way to do this than maybe is happening elsewhere. But if we don't provide that inspiration for it to happen for helping agencies or sports groups engage their constituents in a in a reasonable manner, then it will be left to those groups who are, are litigious by nature or attacking by nature or and worse yet, some some that that are anti hunting are stated, you know, as as anti hunting. We definitely don't want that being used as and I know this is a poor use of the term given the subject, but we don't want to provide ammunition to that. We 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 want to actually be a part of what we believe we have always been a part of, and that's maintaining our wildlife conservation and hunting heritage. And that's a large byline of, of the partnership. Those are our goals. And even for me working for a conservation organization, when I pitched to, to them, for example, our board and said, we need to be preserving our hunting heritage. It was a little easier sell because the Peregrine Fund was founded by falconers and falconry is one of the oldest you know, traditions of hunting on the books. So it was a little more relevant, but imagine when we go to conferences where they're just raptor conferences, we quite often are met with the response of, well, this isn't really raptor conservation. To which I replied, the hell it's not. <laughs> it absolutely is because we spend so much of our time identifying and quantifying problems that I think we're doing a disservice. We're not turning that into conservation. 
if you want to take science and make it conservation, it's how you proceed that determines your effect. It's not just the logic of the, the, the science. And my favorite analogy, and I'll probably use it till I'm dead, so Leland, close your ears, um, because I always say, I know the science of weighing 290-some pounds. I get it. I'm eating more than I'm burning. I get it. But that doesn't mean that that I'm going to just be physically perfectly fit and because I know the logic and the science of it. Change is what we're talking about here. And whenever you're going into asking someone to change a long-held tradition, i.e., when you go fishing, you have your favorite lure. If somebody tells you all of a sudden that that lure is not good, you say, uh, yeah, it is. I've used it. My granddad used it. My great-granddad used it. So now we're talking about human biology and the social sciences. And I think we're not social scientists, but in effect we are, because if you can take the results of your science and turn it into conservation and solve problems that you identify with that science, you're now doing conservation. And everybody has a different idea of how you do conservation. Our way is to share our experiences, share our interpretations of the science, and ask for their support and consideration. And I think that that leads to the next one, which is what is our model? Our model is sharing information so hunters can use uh, that information to make their their uh, decisions and to, to hopefully represent us going into the future of hunting in a much better way than maybe it would if we just were to clam up and say, well, I don't believe it. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, that, that hunting heritage aspect of it is, is, I agree, I think where it has some traction of getting hunters to actually consider it. And I think that's often where we're at, right? Like, we're not telling them you need to do this like right now, just consider it. Once you start thinking about it, the wheels start turning. For instance, and I keep bringing it back to the Midwest and Michigan, but we have like 600,000 deer hunters. So we have a big group of people. Um, and with the biggest conservation organization now on board with promoting voluntary, they're doing that from a hunting heritage perspective. Um, here in Michigan, you know, we have like bald eagles. And unlike maybe condors where you're working from a uh, population deficit or a declining population or one that was traditionally declining that's now, you know, increasing a little bit, bald eagles have now recovered and there's more of them on the landscape. And that's kind of where we're seeing lead impacts here in the Midwest a lot is the Michigan DNR just came out um, a couple months ago with that lead poisoning is the second largest cause of death for bald eagles. And it's not because they're a declining population, it's because they're increasing. There's more of them on the landscape. They're more likely to come into contact with the gut piles that we leave behind. And I think every time that happens in it gets into the newspaper, and that's now uh, every time a bald eagle gets found poisoned, that's front page for all the non-hunters to read. I think that's where you're getting hunters to start thinking, well, that's something I can at least not contribute to anymore and still be effective as a hunter. And I think that's where some of the wheels are starting to turn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there's a there's a lot of challenges in making that initial switch. Uh, and like I talked about before, it's part of it's just knowing that there's options available. Then the second part is knowing how they work. Um, and so that's where a lot of our work is based around is that initial discussion about, okay, there is actually something we should be thinking about. There's, re there's reality here that we need to be thinking about. Um, and it has impacts on both the species, but then also on our traditions. 
And then the other side of that is this is how the ballistics of this of you know other options, these non-lit options work. Because although they're very similar, um, there are some slight differences that people need to understand to be as effective as possible. And if you just go kind of one-to-one, -one, the same as you would with a lead bullet, oftentimes people run into problems. And so we use a lot of the, the tools that we have in our toolbox, whether it's you know the ammunition testing days, and demonstrations of, of terminal performance, um, giving people a chance to test different types of ammunition, um, you know, different ballistic tests, the reviews of the science. All of this is a way to to go through all of those values that people have about the choice of ammunition, which almost all of it comes back to, I don't want to wound an animal. I mean, that's the big thing for people is I want something that's going to work because the responsibility on my shoulders when I squeeze that trigger is so high that I don't want to risk it with something that I don't have confidence in. And if you've got a bullet that, like Chris was saying, you're, you've been using for 20 years and your dad used and your granddad used, why the hell would you change? Unless you're, one, really confident that the bullet works, and two, confident that by doing so, you're protecting the tradition for the next generation. And that's where we can we think one these bullets are phenomenal. Um, tell you all about that. Um, and then two, exactly what you were saying. We are we are being watched by the non bullet. And as soon as they see a response of well, those animals are dying, or it's not population. That's a great way to lose public support, and that's something we really don't want to see. So that's that's another good way to start talking about something else, uh, Leland, is you do demonstrations. Uh, we've done them together. They're really impactful. You know, they're they're very demonstrative. Uh, just just talk the audience through kind of exactly what those entail and, you know, what they're designed to show people and, and you know, typically what they're like for, for just, you know, illustrative purposes. He's looking you at you, Chris. Me, Brown? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you, you you asked Leland, so I was going to let him let him roll with it. Well, um, yeah, uh, we've developed a method uh, of of demonstrating fragmentation or lack thereof by using a, the medium of water or ballistics gel. And um, you know, we've all seen the the mushroomed bullet that we might get lucky and recover from an animal that we've, we've put down. And you look at it and you think, wow, it looks like a nice mushroom. looks like it, that bullet did its job. And I think that's as far as we all had taken it prior to asking these, these deeper questions. And so we were thinking, well, how can we demonstrate that readily? And then just do a side-by-side -side comparison of lead and non-lead bullets. And so being the redneck uh, biologist uh, kid that I was back in the day, I was like, I can figure this out. We'll, we'll, we'll shoot into water jugs. And I shot into water jugs and had them on a table. And I was able to co collect the, um, the mushroom bullet. But then what I noticed in all the water droplets on the table, uh, which, by the way, the hydrostatic shock broke the first table that I shot. Um, <laughs> so then I, I found in the water droplets, there were a bunch of fragments. And I thought, oh, 
okay, we need to collect the entirety of the bullet, the fragments and the mushroom bullet, so that we can weigh the two and hopefully show that we can collect the entirety of the bullet and quantify how much was retained and how much was lost. And the first few times we did this, we found that the retention, weight retention, was exactly what the manufacturers suggested it would be, um, concluding that the uh, water chamber is a pretty good way to collect these bullets, and it's a great way to demonstrate it. It's not the same. I'm going to say this up front. It's not the same as hitting an animal because you're not shooting through hide. You're not shooting through fur. You're not hitting bone. It is just a way to compare with apples and apples, a lead and a non-lead bullet, and shoot them through water and see the results. So we've developed this this um, process, uh, and it's basically a 55-gallon drum turned on its side. We have a, a either a series of water jugs or a piece of a chunk of ballistics gel, and we shoot into them, and then we let people see the results. And when you're comparing a lead and a non-lead bullet side by side, you usually see that, oh, wow, there are the fragments. The very same types of fragments that we're seeing in the digestive system of some of these birds that have been documented as either being lead poisoned or dying from lead poisoning in a, in a mortality case. Um, and then you see these other bullets that retain nearly 100% of their mass pretty damn consistently. And people say, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. But then you, you get into the other details of, well, you might have to drop down to a lighter bullet because copper is less dense than lead and therefore the bullet's a little longer it changes the ballistic coefficient and now we're delving into Leland's territory <laughs> um, so I'll just I'll just turn it over there because I think dispelling some of those myths is a is a good uh, is a good way to start and if we just take them one by one um, it, it'll be I think eye-opening for some folks at least thought-provoking yeah, I mean, that, that first one, I think, is critical, that the density of material is different. So a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm going to a lighter weight bullet, I won't be as effective. But you also imagine that now you've got a bullet that's holding 98 or 99% of its weight with double diameter expansion. That means your penetration is going to be as good or better than a heavier weight lead bullet that's losing 30% off of the front of the bullet um, and stripping away the edges often of that expanded bullet. So you actually see a slowly decreasing mushroom depending on the bullet design. Um, there's also the consistency of not having to marry two materials together, a copper jacket and a lead core. Uh, the cost of doing all that, the bonding or using some sort of mechanical structure to hold the core together, like H-mantle bullet, something like that. But the, the reason that we go to a lighter weight bullet in a non-lead for that density um, is because of the length issues. And that really comes down to stability in a twist rate. So your 30-odd-6 caliber with a 1 in 10 twist um, will stabilize bullets of a certain length. And until now, we've used weight as that measurement of length to a certain extent because we were using the same materials. Now we're switching to a different material, and we have to use different weights to equate the same length. And so if you're using a 180-grain lead core copper jacketed bullet, we generally would recommend dropping to that 165 or 150-grain bullet to look for similar lengths to get the accuracy. Because as soon as you lose stability off that bullet, that's where you start seeing shots thrown on. Um, 
It's not the only reason you throw example, shots. By the way, yeah. the one you taught me, I went from 180 to 168 upon your advice. So yeah. I like that. Yeah, it works well 98% of the time. And then occasionally, like, you know, the 30-odd six I use for a lot of the demonstrations will shoot some 150s really well. And then it really likes the 180 trophy popper. So it's all about the combination of of the tool. Like it's the powder, it's the primer, it's the bullet itself, all those combined. But starting at that lighter green weight cuts down the testing time for a lot of people. Um, so they're not fighting those heavier weights and they're still getting as good a penetration. So that's the first step with accuracy is looking at those weight differences. What, what do you recommend for folks who, you know, you go into your local sporting goods store and maybe they just have one option in that caliber. I'm thinking of, you know, where I usually get mine. If when I first started looking for non-lead, um, you know, with, with my deer camp, guys are using 243, seven millimeter 08, uh, and then a couple 30 out sixes. The only thing I was able to find non-lead in was one option, one, one uh, box, for 30-06, that was it. Um, now, this is a little bit later than, you know, if you're switching to something new, you should be. What do you recommend for folks maybe like this time of the season to make sure that they're dialed in and finding that right one? Is it ordering online, direct through the manufacturer, or through the store? How can folks get around that? Yeah, that's generally the way I would go. You know, get online. There's a ton of options out there. Tell your local store that you're looking for this stuff and say, look, man, I'd love to buy it here, but you don't have it on the shelf and I need to try some different stuff. And if you have it, I'll, I'll buy it from you, but you don't have it. You know, so it buy local when you can, but you know, if, if you can't, tell them you're looking for it so that they can know that there's a, that there's a reason to order it. And that's the big thing for me. I want to support local stores as much as possible. Um, support you know, your mom and pop shop. But you got to tell them how they can help you. Right now, yeah, I mean, you're if you if they don't have anything locally, then the delay in getting an order in is probably long enough that you get it in time. So you're looking at trying to order online and rush deliver some stuff so you can do some testing and try a couple different brands and different weights. That's one of the reasons we hold these demonstrations, at least in a lot of the ones that I do. I bring a stock of ammo and common calibers. And let people test different options because some rifles will like that one brand and one weight and other rifles just won't. It's the same as buying a new rifle and having to test different bullet options in lead, right? You don't just grab one thing off the shelf and say, oh, well, if this doesn't work, the rifle's junk. You have to try a couple of different things um, and see which combination matches up with your rifle to give you the best accuracy. And that's, of course, always step one, is getting the accuracy. Chris, you got something you needed to... I was just going to add to that, that, you know, there are a bunch of manufacturers of firearms that everybody well knows, and I won't mention their names because I didn't get permission to do so, but um, in talking to those manufacturers, many of them do test their their rifles with non-lead because it's now known that that is something people will be looking for. And that's a huge transition, you know, and that's going to, I think we're going to continue to see those transitions. But again, we from are a manufacturer's NWF perspective, outdoors. they're providing ammunition for us, not just for hunting. That's such a small percentage of the business of producing ammo. 
that you have to be respectful when a, ma a manufacturer says, hey, that's like, you know, 11% of my of what I provide there. So, you know, does it pay that I produce every grain weight and every caliber um, if people aren't buying it? So you're kind of caught in the middle of the chicken or the egg thing here. So um, we have to be respectful of that. But ultimately, the, the solution is the same. We're helping people navigate this process, whether it be an, an agency trying to figure out how to talk to their hunters about this or an individual hunter. And it's 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 not easy. It's not like it like Leland said, it's not as easy as saying, oh, I'm just going to shoot non lead next year. But it's becoming easier. And we have to make sure that people know that. And then in some places like California, it's even more difficult because there's another uh, piece of legislation that made illegal the sales of ammunition online so they can't even order it um and i think that you know when we see things like that i think it it represents how um immediate action is needed to be sure that we don't end up in some of those situations where we're so limited that that we can't provide a, vi a viable solution and so um it's both a good thing and a bad thing because the good thing is there's more ammunition out there today being produced um, than has ever been available with greater options. Um, but then you have something like COVID affect the market and affect the availability of ammo on top of it already being hard to come by. And and we just heard an update yesterday from one of our partners at Arizona Game and Fish that said, you can, it's not only that you can't find non-lead on the shelf at the local spokesman's warehouse, you can't find anything for some calibers because people have bought it all up. So it's a, as they say in the social sciences realm, I guess it's a, it can be a very wicked uh, problem <laughs> that it's, it, it makes it yeah even, even more difficult. But um, yeah, the fact that manufacturers are testing with non-lead these days, I think vouches very well for the accuracy issue and the ability to find ammo that works. It's just, can you find it in your local community? If we had a program by where the big box stores had the majority of their ammunition options in non-lead, that will do more good for this effort than we've done combined in the last 20 years. You touched on two things there, Chris, that one was, you know, asking your local store to get it. And then the big box store comment you just made. Uh, I think it's a way you can kind of be an advocate of sorts, right? If you just go into these stores and you say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. I've tried it. It works well. It's I, I prefer to shoot non-lead. Uh, you know, I'll tell you personally, I've had a couple bad experiences with that. I've been essentially, you know, laughed out of the room, like, why in the hell would you want that? And, you know, the hippie hunter, what, you know, all the different things you hear. But uh, I think over time, the more guys that are out doing that and asking for it and demanding it, I mean, this is a supply and demand world, right? I've heard that from manufacturers. I'm sure you guys have heard that, that same, I've heard that same 11% or 10% of our ammunition that we make is copper and the rest of it's lead. So, you know, just economics tell us why would we go to every in, in degree on those, on those non lead rounds, but that's a good way to be an advocate, I think. And, uh, you know, in a small way, just even having those conversations, with your local gun store. Uh, let's talk about too, a little bit, the, the common misperceptions. Just some of the stuff you guys have heard that just, you know, is patently not true about non-lead ammunition or just some of the stuff you hear out there that's just like, wait, that's that's off. That's not accurate. You know, whether it be about wildlife and its impacts, whether it be about how the ammunition performs or, 
you know, I know, I know you guys have, you've told me some of these, some of the stuff that's come across your plate since, since you started this work, just, just talk about a little bit of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the big one we always hear is that, oh, it's so expensive. There's no way I could possibly afford it. And I mean, the reality is if you're buying anything, but the most bargain, uh, type of ammo, you're probably already saying paying the same price. Uh, you know, for factory loaded ammo, you're in that high twenties to mid thirties for common calibers. Um, for people who are shooting, you know, some off caliber or something that's harder to find. Uh, yeah, you're going to pay more, but you're paying more for any other ammo too. Um, and you're the performance you're getting for that hunting round. And that's again, getting back to, Hey, hunting versus just going out and target shooting. Uh, it's worth the extra couple bucks for a box. And even, you know, even the premium stuff, you know, you're probably paying five or $10 more than the bargain basement stuff. Um, and the performance you get is, is phenomenal. Uh, the other, probably the most realistic one is one we already talked about, which is accessibility. Finding it in your local shop can be more challenging. And part of it's that economic. Um, model, right? Is people maybe aren't asking for it, so they're not ordering it. So it's harder to, to get in a local store. But that's when having that conversation with your local shop becomes so important. Uh, another big one is just, you know, basic accuracy. You know, you'll never be able to, to shoot this thing, you know, accurately. There's a couple of arguments against that. One is that if every time I've done one of these demonstrations and someone comes in and brings the current ammo that they're using and it's capable of being an accurate rifle, we can usually find a factory loaded non-lead ammo that's either as close or even a little bit better. Um, and we've done some informal studies. I think Chris did the first one in Arizona and then we did a repeat of it up here in Oregon that did a blind um study on accuracy and gave out five rounds of different types of ammo to people without telling them what it was and just said shoot a group give us your most accurate group with this with this ammo and we're going to measure it and we're going to calculate it and statistically there was no difference between lead and non-lead ammunition although in reality i think non-lead in both occasions edged out um, the lead bullets for for accuracy and we weren't choosing you know the the budget lead stuff and we're choosing good quality lead ammo and as part of that. So it was kind of apples to apples comparisons. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we were using, we were using, you know, the good, the good names. We weren't using kind of wolf ammo or something. People aren't using wolf ammo to hunt anyway, but that's something else. Uh, the other thing we talk a lot about is just, effectiveness on game and this gets really we can get really deep in the weeds here and i love getting deep in the weeds on this um and i'll try not to get too far down there into this but a lot of people think that because you have a bullet that holds together and more often than not goes completely through an animal from its broadside that you're losing effectiveness there's a somewhat of a misinterpretation of how we actually measure things we use energy as an easy metric to measure damage because we could say, oh, well, we have a speed before it hit and we've got a speed 
after, whether it's zero or a little bit more, we can say how much energy was lost. But energy isn't directly correlated to damage. Um, that has a lot to do with the frontal structure of the bullet, um, in part the speed that it's going through the tissue at, what it hits, all of these different factors. And both my experience and some of the research that's out there has looked at damage caused by non-lead bullets and common lead cord upper jacketed bullets and seeing that there's statistically no difference. But again, non-lead bullets have been shown in a couple of studies to actually provide slightly wider wound channels deeper into animals. Um, that, like I said, statistically, the volume of those wound channels wasn't really different. Um, but for me, knowing that my bullet has the penetration capability to go deeper in an animal, so animals don't just stand broadside for me, I'm not that lucky, so I want that ability to penetrate a little bit deeper. It also has slightly wider wound channel towards the tail end of that penetration, so if it's driving, you know, if I've got a quarter and a way shot, I'm going to drive through a fair amount of animal, I'm giving a little bit additional damage as that bullet actually gets to where it needs to be. And it doesn't stop short. I mean, God forbid you shoot something before it stops short of the vital organs. And then the other one is that I like a hole up the other side. Um, that means blood's leaking out of someone. That entrance hole is caliber size. The exit hole is going to be at least two times diameter of that expanded bullet size. And more often than not is, you know, a 50 cent piece or something like that within the bullet. And that means leak in blood in the case you actually do have to track something. And then the last one is just that weight retention of the bullet. So if you hit bone, uh, if you hit you know, some of these structures in an animal that really punishes a bullet, you've got confidence that it's not going to destroy the bullet and we're still going to get penetration through that heavy bone into vital organs. Even if you were to lose all four of the pedals off a non-lead bullet, the shank at least is still going to go through and put, put a hole through the vital organs so you won't end up with just a wounded animal. A small holes better than no hole at that point, which is what you're going to get with no actual funnel. And there's another one which can be a little confusing for people, and, um, and, and that's the amount of bloodshot meat. And so it's a little odd because people say, oh, well, more bloodshot meat means more damage. Um, but it's the difference in the, in the tissues that create variation in the amount of damage. So the muscle tissue is much more resilient to that damage um, than, say, lung tissue and the and shock wave that's actually pushed out. When we think about damage, we're thinking about the tissue being pushed to the side, which requires velocity to create that push of tension to stretch the tissue and create tearing and then blood loss because of that tearing. So as the bullet slows down, part of the reason you see the smaller wound chains from a lead bullet that's losing weight is because it slows down faster. So at the tail end of that, it's slowing down and not actually stretching tissue as far, whereas a non-lead bullet that's holding velocity won't demonstrate the same energy dump 
but still will demonstrate the tissue damage. And that's where we start getting into tissue variation and the ability to absorb damage, so less bloodshot meat because they're not having fragments create mechanical damage in there, but still very good, high-quality wound channels in the vital organs, so tissue, the lung, um, heart to a certain extent because there's a lot of blood in the heart, and that blood actually creates the hydraulic pressure and tears tissue from there, um, and then the lung, liver, and things like that. It's just, I mean, you can go so deep down the hole into terminal performance. And the reality is a lot of it's hypothesis right now. Um, you know, we've got a lot of good ideas of what's happening, but you're talking about shooting um, heterogeneous tissue at high speeds into an opaque system that you can't sit there and watch what happens. So we're looking at the clues and evidence we have after the fact and making educated guesses about exactly what's happening at those incredibly high velocities that impact. Sorry, I'm just listening like, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, like I said, I mean, we could go. The other way to measure that is how far does your animal run, right? Because that gives us a, a concept of performance. So does the animal lose blood fast enough that it dies very quickly? I'll tell you, in the hundreds of animals that I've shot through my invasive species work, I can count on one hand the number of animals that have gone less or more than 30 yards with a normal bullet. Um, and those were at least one of them. I think I hit high on a pig, and pigs are tough to start with, and you hit them high, there's actually a little bit of a gap between lungs and spine. And so you can shock that animal and knock it over. And the, the wound will seal up, a lot of fat on them, a lot of thick hide, and end up having an animal run. So bad shots don't equate to bad bullet performance. And we don't want to, <laughs> and, and we don't, you know, as hunters who feel pretty confident in our abilities because of our experiences and our lifetime of hunting or whatever, we don't want to believe that it's a poor shot placement. You know, confidence in your tools is everything and it's i don't care if you're fishing or you're hunting you have to have confidence in your tools and when you change one of the tools in your toolbox you're it, it, and it doesn't come out like you think you're gonna your response is gonna be well it must be the new tool then but but look at the data as the transition for uh, to non-lead for waterfowl hunting there was a bit of a learning curve there there is a learning curve there and i've had people tell me you know, I shot this elk through and through both lungs, knocked it down, it got up and ran off, it didn't even hurt it. Well, from for me and my confidence in non-lead ammunition, I can tell you that animal, if if it's as you just described, that animal did die. And furthermore, I shot a cow elk a few years ago and shot much lower than I had anticipated. I, I thought I was going for a double lung shot and I shot low because uh, I'm not the greatest shot in the world. And, uh, but I knew I, I, I knew that animal was going to die. There was fresh snow on the ground. I didn't see blood. And I thought, how can this be? Luckily, I was hunting in the pinion juniper country out in unit 10 and unit nine in Arizona. And I could follow the tracks. And she went about uh, 60, 70 yards around a couple of trees and then crashed to her death. When I got there 
And the whole time I followed the tracks, I was dismayed because I thought, I'm not seeing any blood. What, what the hell's going on? And when I got there, I found the only blood was under the animal. And it was, I, my assessment is, it was because I shot it in the heart. I didn't mean to. There was nothing to blow, no air, that is, through the lungs, and no blood pressure to push because it exploded the heart within the animal. So I had an entrance and an exit wound, and the only blood was at the site where she fell down. So I think that might explain what had happened. But had I had I jumped to conclusions and not had the confidence in my tools, I might have thought that that animal ran off and I would have, would have, would have continued hunting. Um, but I had confidence. Another thing. I had a um, a longtime game specialist from Arizona Game and Fish that is really my mentor in elk hunting because we didn't I didn't hunt elk uh, when I was growing up, and um, we were headed to a site. We saw a herd of cows. They stopped in the middle of a pasture, and he said, "Are you gonna Are you gonna get your gun?" And I said, "Well, I, I don't know. Um, sure, yeah. So if they stay there long enough for me to get my gun out of its case and get set up, then yeah, I'll take one of these cows. I'm a, I'm a meat hunter generally, and." I got lined up about 180 yards. I shot the cow and I shot one shot broadside. I picked the one I wanted and I shot it broadside. He goes, shoot it again, shoot it again. And I didn't because I had confidence that everything was right. I even saw the impact in my scope. And he was under the impression that his way of teaching was you shoot them until they fall. Well, I didn't want to ruin the meat. I'm a meat hunter. And I said, no, no, it's, it's okay. I'm confident in my shot. And I'm confident in that 165 grain bullet. Hers 168, 30-06. And uh, she ran about 80 yards and crashed. Um, I shot another cow elk at 418 yards. Something, again, I would probably never do again. But I had confidence in that bullet because I had just been on a bison hunt on the Kaibab Plateau. I tested it extensively. I knew what the trajectory was at that yardage. I shot and when I hit, I thought, oh, no, did I mess up? Maybe that's too far. She ran about 80 yards and crashed up and piled up, and it was a double lung shot. So some of those misconceptions are, um, you know, I tried it, and it just doesn't work. Well, <laughs> sometimes you have to, to keep trying it to develop that confidence, and then you have to retain that confidence through trial and error. But most hunters, most hunters don't have that many opportunities. You know, and then when you start asking questions of those hunters, as we do with the deer hunters locally in northern Arizona, we be, we can ask the the refined questions. You know, of of uh, you know, did you uh, did you sight it in when you got the new ammunition? Well, no, I didn't have time. You know, things like that. So then you get into the details of, oh, wait a second, you changed bullet type. I don't care if you change to another lead bullet, another manufactured bullet, another grain weight, another powder load. All those things affect how that bullet performs, and you have to know that before you go to the field. So whether it's non-lead or not, knowing your tools and having confidence, I think, is, is one of the biggest components. Of it. And we could that, go forever. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I sit here and I think I, I have like four things that I could say from what you said, Chris, because I think partly there's just a general anxiety, right? When you take a shot, I mean, I think, especially for those of us who, are, who really want to be conscientious and you know, it's about the meat and it's about harvesting and put food on the table. It's a high anxiety moment. I mean, every time I can't, as much as I practice, my heart starts racing like crazy every single time. Even when my boy's out there and he's going to take the shot, I'm racing. like. So that's one of the things I think regardless of, you know, what round you're using, that's always going to be part of it. Um, and I, it, one other thing that you touched on too, you know, I think 
we talked about this last time we had Kevin Monteith on, who's a deer, you know, famous deer biologist. And, and we talked about how hunters are particularly susceptible to kind of anecdotal evidence being the gospel, right? Like one time they saw it and I, I don't know what it is about the community, but one time they saw it and that just must be true. And I, I've heard a little more, more hunters do that than, than other segments of society personally, but maybe I'm, maybe I just roll in those circles a little more and hear it. But I think that's an interesting thing about this is a way that we really want to do this. And the way that it'll be successful is if we get the other hunters telling these stories and, and talking about this, is, it's sure what you guys are incubating. Um, and so before we go to talk about what, what average Joe or Jane Hunter should do, what should they be looking at? You know, if they want to make the switch, where can they find information? What, you know, if you were a, if you were a lead hunter all your life and thought, you know, I really ought to, I really want to make the switch or I really want to look at this, what, what would you start with? Well, I mean, the first step is to just learn a little bit more about it. And there's a couple of really good resources for that. One is uh, one of our partners runs the hunting with non-lead site. Um, and that's a really good resource online. It's huntingwithnonlead.org. There's a lot of information on there. That's uh, a good place to start with the basics. Um, and going from there, like we talked about, it's really about buying a couple of different types of ammunition, running them through your gun, figuring out which one shoots the best. You know, if you want to do the terminal ballistics testing, those systems that, you know, Chris designed and we've been using for years, anyone can make one of those. It takes half of a day and you just go buy some water jugs and go shoot them and you can test them. And if you want to go buy ballistic gel, that's fine too, but you can do that on your own. Um, or just keep an eye out for opportunities. You know, we do travel around quite a bit. Occasionally we get those demonstrations running in different places. Um, the other one we already talked about was, you know, talk with your local store. And that includes talk with your local store, but also talk within your local community. If you're a member of, you know, a National Wildlife Federation affiliate or any other hunting conservation group, uh, start having these conversations and, and start learning from each other about what's going on. I bet you'd be surprised. There's a, there's a lot of people who are trying on lead now and, and getting experience with them and just start talking to each other and start learning from each other. Yeah, and I think it, go ahead. You had another thought. I was just going to say, you know, uh, when talking to those groups, if there's interest from them, um, you know, the, the point of the partnership is to bring us all together so no one's out there on their own. Um, so we, we're working as a team, as a community to address this unintended and unnecessary exposure uh, for wildlife. And by doing it, doing it as a team, uh, we show that the community as a whole really cares about this and cares about wildlife, but also wants to continue our traditions. And so recommend visiting monmouthpartnership.org. Take a look at what we're about. Take a look at our current partners. Um, we've got a number of podcasts we have done like this one, and I uh, put together some videos over the past couple of years that we know we're taking a look at. Um, and I'm sure once this comes out, we'll, we'll have that up there as well for people to listen to. Yep, you hit on the one I was going to mention, and and I guess I'd, I'll just add that uh, if you're going to make a decision on something, 
uh, do your research. Don't don't take our word for it. Don't read a blog and think that you've got it all figured out. Um, don't rest on that because the future of hunting requires more than that from us. And take what we've said. You have questions, call us. I mean, our, our phone numbers are on our website at nonledpartnership.org. Um, you want to have us out to do a demonstration for your local group or their um, shooting range. If we can pull it off under COVID, we will. If not, we can we can do it um, virtually and just engage. Engage yourself. Look at the information available. Make your own decision. Ask other people to do uh, other hunters to do the same. Um, you, this is not something we can just blow off. I think nothing in the future of hunting and conservation and where those those two are together, which for us is everywhere, um, we, we have to do our due diligence. So educate yourself, um, be mindful in the decisions you make, and most important, tell people about it. And um, I know the people who are in opposition, they have no problem telling people about what their opinion is. Um, but I think once we have made a decision, and this is one of the failings of hunters and anglers, I think, as a group, we don't want to go out there and advocate. We want to go do what we love to do, and that's hunt and fish and enjoy the outdoors. And if you make the decision, you make the switch, tell the story and tell people why. And engage a few of your non-hunting friends and tell them why you have uh, taken the, the, the choice you have. We're going to need those metrics in the future more than more than ever. Um, not just we're going to need people to switch. We need the numbers. We need to know why and how they switched and how many of them have. Because a lot of the things we hear from the non-hunting community is hunters don't care. And that's for damn sure not true. And the only way we can prove that is by showing those data. And so we'll be working in the coming years to develop metrics necessary to show how hunters have responded to this new conservation challenge and how they have, have met it as we have historically um, to solve yet another small problem. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, you know, you mentioned to share the story. And I mean, we're all sharing stuff, our, our hunts on Instagram and Facebook anyways. So if you're using non-lead and it's success, successful for you, let, make that part of your story. You know, hashtag non-lead or tag us or the non-lead hunting partnership. Just let people know that that's successful for you. That's part of that word of mouth. That's where kind of some of our anecdotal experiences can actually be used for good. Um, and, and I always like to say this too, and I'll just add this. If you haven't done it yet, you are not being judged. No, nobody here is judging you for having not already done it. As Leland said at the beginning, um, they just found out about this a little sooner. Like I just made the switch a couple years ago. So I'm still in that like zealous new convert phase. Um, but you, you don't know about this until you know. And so there's nobody judging you. But if you've made it this far through this podcast, you, you've heard about it now, so you at least have to consider it. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth with the, with the Instagram stuff and the judgment. And, you know, at an on-led partnership on Instagram, and I think probably the same on Facebook. You know, we're trying to build that community for for each other on social media as well, although I'm the first to admit we're probably the worst social media people <laughs> that are out there, but we're trying. And well, having other folks tagging us is good. Yeah, and it's mm -hmm. tough. I mean, it it could be a, a more than one full time job. You know, we do a post and we'll get the few, the ones you expect where somebody, why do you lie? You're a liar. It's like, oh man, really? Well, it's a hell of a lot easier to sit behind your keyboard and just 
say that all of this is bullshit. I'm sorry, I don't know if you can say that or not on your podcast, or say all of this is is uh, is a is a bunch of bum dope. Um, but it's really easy to do that. What's what's a little harder to do is engage with us, like you all have, and we thank you for that opportunity um, to hopefully pique the interest of folks to learn a little more. And I think we always see a positive result when people take the time to engage. Um, so, but it, but it's hard when you see things like, why are you lying? This is not true. And it's like, well, our experience is our experience and, uh, it is true to us. And, and maybe we're not seeing the forest for the trees, but the more and more we've seen in the last two years gives us confidence that at every personal engagement we have at every engagement with a, a, a sports group affiliate, all we're seeing is positive results. We're seeing unanimous decisions by boards and committees and commissions for that matter that are in support of doing what we're talking about, which is working to educate ourselves and make good decisions. That's awesome advice, Chris, and, and you know both of you. I just appreciate you for being the folks who go out there and, and talk about this and take the hits. I know you've you've taken a lot of flack for for this over the years, but you know it's it, you're tried and true. You, you're practicing what you preach. You're you're doing this for out of the goodness of your hearts, really. You know we're all wildlife advocates. That's the thing that I think gets lost a little bit on this. I mean. You know, for me, learning originally that, that there is a chance that whatever I did, maybe, you know, inadvertently had some harm to some other wildlife, that was enough in and of itself, right? Much less the fact that uh, we just don't want to be putting this stuff out there and there's alternatives and it helps us with our image as hunters. There's a lot of reasons to think about this. And I love the way Drew put it as well, but just thank you for what you're doing. Uh, thank you for, for talking with us. I love talking to you guys. We can always talk forever. Uh, and we'll, we'll be we'll be together in person soon enough yet again so we can uh do the long version of this uh but thanks for thanks for coming on thanks for thanks for all you do and, and just uh we'll, we'll get some we'll get some of your information in our show notes and we'll tell people about this and and keep keep doing the good work and fighting the good fight gents will do thank you for the opportunity yeah thanks for having us on it's been a, been a good time you're welcome. Take care. So long. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.